Golazo. So we'll return to the meditation, the two bodhicittas, about, about, about which we really have nothing more to add, I think, at least for the time being. Uh, just a few comments about motivation for that practice itself, motivation for the practice of shamatha and everything else we're doing here. Uh, cannot be overemphasized, and just to highlight a point, I th- don't think I've made all that explicit in the past, and that is whenever we engage in any type of, call it virtue, any act of kindness, any, any virtue of any sort, body, speech, mind, meditative, social activism, and so forth, whenever we engage in virtue, then from that, uh, a type of let's call it positive energy, something is accumulated. Really, like, It's kind of like petrol in your tank. Some kind of energy is there. It's a positive energy that over the course of time, in this lifetime, future lifetimes, uh, will be to your advantage <clears throat> in various ways. It, will, it may manifest in a very fortunate life, fortunate circumstances in your life, fortunate relationship with other people, fortune smiling upon you. It is also merit that really empowers meditative practice. Why do some people pro- progress in various practices more quickly than others? Uh, and it's not just skill and technique. It's not just intelligence, not just health and vitality. It's, it's merit. Um, and merit is something that is as it is accumulated. It can, be accumu- it can be accumulated and it can be also lost. Just like negative karma can be accumulated and you can also burn it. You can eliminate it. You can disempower it. Uh, well, likewise, so there's a great deal of symmetry here. Likewise for, for virtue, for merit. But there it is. It's basically just call it positive energy. It's probably as good as any. But then how will that energy be spent? How will it actually come to fruition? Because it's just positive. You know, it's just like gasoline in the tank. Okay, that means you can go someplace, but where are you going to go? You know? So where's the steering wheel? And the steering wheel is what is it you really want? It's not just some specially generated motivation that we do in Buddhism, but just generally speaking, if there's some merit there, uh, merit from being a loving mother, merit from being a very honest business person, doing any kind of service for society, and so forth, any kind of virtue whatsoever, there's merit there, but how it manifests, how it comes to fruition in this or future lifetimes, has everything to do with what you really desire. Right? And so if one is living a very virtuous life, let's imagine that one is a, a doctor, a medical doctor, by, by nature, a very virtuous profession. It's designed to help people. And many people, I think a great number of people, go into that not simply because they want the wealth and status, but they want to do something really good. But over the course of time, I was told by, I won't go into big t- tangent, but no, I'm not, not going to go to the tangent. Let's just keep right on track. Uh, motivations can change. The I- idealism of a medical student, as one goes through the system, the motivation can change. You get into a system, you get into a large hospital, there's politics, there's money, there's business. You're now part of a big business, and it's a, 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 often it's a for-profit institution. And you're now part of that institution. You have the pharmaceutical industry besieging you, wanting to take you on luxury clu- cruises or whatever, because they want you to sell their drugs. It suddenly becomes much more complicated than perhaps you thought when you started out in graduate school. Um, motivation can change. So if, over the course of time, and I'm... I'm not picking on that profession at all. Thank goodness we have doctors. But for any type of virtue, if the motivation, kind of the background motivation is what I would really like is I'd love to be really affluent. What I'd really like, I'd love to be famous. What I'd really like, I'd love to be in a position of great influence. Those are my three jewels for the mundane world. Power, wealth, and influence. Power and status. Status. So influence is power. So status, prestige, 
uh, reputation, fame, celebrity, and then wealth, everything you can get with it, and then power and everything you can get with it. Um, if that's really in the back of your mind, that's what you would really like as you engage in virtue. That's where your virtue will go. So when we see, don't need to give any names at all, celebrities, people who are very famous, people who are very powerful, very wealthy, it wasn't just because they're smart or they're beautiful or they're talented. There's a lot of smart, beautiful, talented people who are not celebrities and wind up being failures in, in their profession. didn't work out for them. And so the merit can go in a wide variety of directions, including just kind of fizzling out, like going to a deva realm, really pleasant, and then it's gone. You've kind of just, it's like a vacation, like an ocean cruise, and then your money is spent and you're back to zero. And so to see that one is uh, this, I'm giving you an investment counseling for uh, whatever merit you've been accumulating over these eight weeks and over the coming years of the life. Uh, if you keep on coming back to your own most meaningful motivation, I'm not going to tell you the right one, of course, but it's just, to my mind, the highest of all motivations. But there are many meaningful motivations. But for the simplest act, uh, motivation is everything. I'll tell you a story that may be literally true. I think Tibetans believe it is. And it may be. What do I know? But it's certainly a nice, a good parable in any case. Here's the story. That it was during the life of the Buddha. And the Buddha was out on alms round with, with a gathering of disciples. Simply out and imagine some country road. There he is, walking along. And a little boy saw them coming. And he was so deeply moved, just by, the, by many people, just profoundly moved by the sheer presence of the Buddha. And he saw him coming, and he just was filled with faith, this little boy, little village boy. And he looked on him with tremendous faith, and he wanted to offer him something. He had nothing, he really had nothing at all to give. So he just, he reached down into the dirt and took up a handful of dirt, and he said, I wish this could be gold, and I would offer it to you. And that was it. He was born as King Ashoka. So the story, it's, uh, that is, how, that is how, uh, how karma works. So if that winds up not being literally true, well, okay, it's true in principle. That, that's, that's right. That's the way it is. And so motivation, so what he actually offered, worth it nothing whatsoever, but his motivation was solid gold. And then, there we go. And so as we are practicing here, in any type of virtue, and clearly for our kind of our formal practice, to bring to mind, make it explicit, Keep on coming back to it. Come back to the well. Whatever your most meaningful motivation is, you can do it with that fourfold vision quest of the loving-kindness practice I've taught so many times. Um, but come back to the motivation. And if your motivation, if it, really winds up, if it really starts to become more and more sincere, as one of you, 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 you warmed the cockles of my heart a few days ago. One of you came for a personal interview and said, for the first time, bodhicitta seems real. It seems grounded. I get it. Oh, still my beating heart, you know? Um, when the bodhicitta, when it, when it really is taking root and it's becoming something real, then you're investing in, uh, what do you call it, gold securities? I don't know. You're investing in something that's kind of the best long-term investment you can possibly do. Because if that's where you're investing, this, I want, this is my, my piggy bank, is the merit I need to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient being. You put it there. Uh, then it's secure. It's really a secured account, you know. And you won't, that is, it won't come to full fruition. You will not have tapped it out until you come to the fruition of that. If your highest vision is, oh, I wish I could leave beautiful like the most beautiful movie star and etc. and have people love me and adulate me and, be, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, if that's where it is, that's where it will go. 
and you'll have that lifetime, and then the, the merit will be finished. Okay, you got it. There you are. Be careful of what you wish for. You know? So you're this beautiful movie star. Right. But if this is where it's going, then it won't come to its full fruition until you get what you want. And so it's a t in kind, of a, kind of a strange kind of a way. It's an extremely benign type of attachment. And that is, I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go. I'm not going to be satisfied. I'm not going to release all aspirations, all desires, until that comes to fruition. Now, what Dingo Kinzerimbuchi says in his beautiful commentary to seven-point mind training called Enlightened Courage is, is that when you're a tenth-stage bodhisattva, way, way up there, you're almost right, you're about to go over the waterfall into full enlightenment, is that at that point, you come to this sublime equanimity, that if you've gotten there, this bodhicitta has, has moved you all the way through the five paths, the ten bhumis, and so forth. You're almost there to perfect enlightenment. And, said, and then he says in this incredibly Dzogchen way, when you get there, you're right next door to perfect enlightenment, the final breakthrough. He said from that vantage point, you actually lose any preference for, for nirvana over samsara. All preference is gone, right? But you still have that momentum of bodhicitta. And it just sweeps you right through to the end, right? And then you become perfectly awakened. So when I first was learning really in some detail about bodhicitta from Geshe Ngam and Taige, must have been 1971, early 72, first heard about it. And we only had eight students in the class. This was, this was for the really serious students. It was a one-year class. And just a little footnote, because I find it so anomalous. I was in Switzerland the summer before this class began in the fall of 1971. And the last thing I wanted was to be in a classroom situation. I just escaped from academia and never wanted to go back. You know? I wanted, as you know, I wanted to find my yogi in the cave in Nepal who would say, my chela has come. You know? And that would be it. It'd be incredibly romantic. And I'd sit there in a cave for 10 years, come out enlightened, and you know, have a good time. Uh, but I was, it was Nepal. It was a yogi. It was a cave. All I wanted to become was a yogi. And then while I was studying with the Sakya, Sakya Lama, Sakya Geshe in Switzerland, this bulletin came from Dharamsala. And it said, under the auspice of His Holiness Dalai Lama, a one-year class, three-month class, one-year class, four Westerners to really study Buddhism well is going to be opened in the fall of 71, and people are welcome to come. And I looked, I had no interest. I didn't want to go to a classroom. I didn't want to go to Dharamsala. Dalai Lama, I thought he was a king. Uh, but the Sakya Lama, Sherak Yansen, he said, oh, Alan, this is under the Dalai Lama. You should definitely go there. So I had some good sense to listen to somebody who knew better than I said, okay, if you say so. So that's where I went. And so Geshe Ngam and Taige then taught us the whole Lam Rim, all these stages of the path, got to Bodhicitta. And I remember when I was hearing about this, it just seemed so high to achieve perfect enlightenment and all these qualities of perfect enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. And I went to Geshe Ngam and Taige and I said, oh, I mean, this is, obviously it's, this, it's a marvelous ideal, a great aspiration, but I don't think I'm ready for that. I'm, I'm just learning my baby steps here. I'm just trying to learn the basic ABCs of Buddhism, and you're telling us this incredible bodhisattva ideal and motivation. I don't think I'm ready for that. And he said, nonsense, no, develop it today. Start right now. You don't, you don't want to die without having cultivated bodhicitta. You could die at any time. No, you're not too early. You're not too young. No, start right now. Very insistent. So then I get to be insistent too. Anybody who thinks, oh, no, it's up your head? No, it's not. Because my teacher told me so. But it's true. And so wherever you feel you are in your practice, whether you feel you're a gifted shamatha meditator, you're the slowest one among two-thirds of the people, the two-thirds are all the slowest one, 
uh, you know, wherever you think you are, how gifted you are, how deep your background is, how intensive and effective your practice is, whatever you think, it doesn't matter. Whatever you think, wherever you place yourself, um, it's never too early for your motive. Even for a session that you think is probably going to be pretty cruddy, because maybe you're quite sleepy, the mind's dull, or maybe really, really agitated, a lot of rumination coming up for whatever reason. So you're anticipating this session will probably be one of my poorest. Good, fine, do your crummy session and do it with bodhicitta. It's your best shot for the time being, so why not have bodhicitta be your motivation? Then at least it'll be that. It'll be something done with the motivation of bodhicitta. So it was a crummy session, but it had a good motivation. Its heart was in the right place. You know? So just hammering this point home, that you know, once you've achieved shamatha and vipassana bodhicitta, then you're on the path, it's irreversible. Fantastic. Great. You're born in a pure land, sukhavati, whatever. Great. But we don't have to wait for a pure land. We don't have to wait until we've achieved shamatha and uncontrived bodhicitta and so forth to have some really strong confidence that we are laying a foundation that can continue all the way through a lifetime, through the bardo and on, even without high realization, and even without being born in some pure land. Uh, and it's bodhicitta. It's really that. If it's sincere, if it's not lip service, it's very easy to do lip service. That's why I don't do any chant. I do almost no chanting. We, we, I could say everybody, okay, sangye chodan soki chonamna chanju bhavi dani kyapsuji dagi chinzu kibe sonamgi dola penju sangye dupa sho. We could all be chanting this every single day in Tibetan. It's wonderful. It's a verse of refuge in Bodhicitta. Atisha wrote it, by the way. Um, but I don't, because I just don't want to give us any space for empty ritual. I'd rather have it silent and real than verbal and run the risk that we're just doing the, oh, yeah, I have to do this. Okay, yeah, well, what was that? How do we pronounce it again? So we really don't have any, rich, empty, any empty ritual in it. That could be, we have no empty ritual, I think, in this retreat. That can be very, very meaningful, of course. And so when you want to have a format, there's a lovely verse for it. But coming right back just to the nucleus, this has been a very nuclear retreat altogether. It's been all about content and very little about format, right? And so... Coming back to that motivation, then wherever you're on the path, and whether you have one year to live or 60 years to live, um, to maintain that continuity of motivation in retreat, in socially engaged way of life, very busy life, very simple life, maintaining that continuity, living an ethical way of life, maintaining that motivation, at the end of the day, dedicating merit. You can have a lot of confidence that you'll be able to continue practice even if your bardo is not lucid, even if it's not. It's, you get through bardo on the power of your habituation, of familiarity, of karma, of prayers, of aspirations. And if this has been running through for years or even decades of your life, every day, maintaining a high ethic level, good motivation, dedication of merit, whether you're meditating nine hours a day or 20 minutes a day but living an ethical way of life, you're laying a path. You're really laying a path. And you can die without regret. You can die with a lot of confidence that... Even the bardo a bit confusing. It won't be that bad. And where you're going, you can continue practicing. Now, final point before we go to the practice. A, a balance I learned about a long time ago, and I found it very, very useful, is you've seen me emphasize, and I, I think I always speak with sincerity, unless I'm just joking, like mm, Camilla has actually not destroyed any cities with her psychic powers. She's very discreet. You know, she's been really keeping it very quiet. Even her mother probably doesn't know that. Um, but apart from joking, then I speak with sincerity. I think I just do. Um, 
And so when I was speaking about my sense is we have these three generations to really revive, revitalize, and give kind of a second, second wind. Uh, at least Buddhism in the modern world. I mean, Tibetan, they're doing pretty darn well considering how much they've suffered there. And of course, there are other schools of Buddhism, and of course, there are other Dharma traditions, Christian, Hindu, and so forth. So, but I meant that. And so bringing that to mind, then you evaluate, see whether my words make sense, or maybe I'm just kind of exaggerating. It's your, your call. Um, but of course, of course, the point of all of that, because we are in a unique period of history in so many ways, unprecedented, um, a sense of urgency, a sense of urgency. This is what the meditation on impermanence, death and impermanence is about. You know, that all composite phenomena are in a state of change. We will certainly die, and the time of our death is utterly uncertain. Right? So a sense of urgency and arousing the motivation as sincerely as we can that might I achieve perfect awakening even in this lifetime. You know? Especially if one's young, capable, has strong motivation. Why not aspire for that? The people who achieve enlightenment in this lifetime are the people who aspired for it, not the people who thought, oh, shucks, not me, I could never do it. Right? As, uh, remember that, that quote from Edison, history is filled with, uh, filled with people who are failures, who got very close to succeeding but then gave up. You know? um, so the great beings of the past all had great aspirations. They didn't aim low and then somehow accidentally get high. They aimed high, and then some achieve high, but even if you don't achieve it in the Sith lifetime, well, it was the right direction. It's not like trying to make a million dollars before, you know, make, make a million dollars, become extremely wealthy, and then failing, and then you just die not, not rich. It's like you, it's a win-win situation, right? If you achieve enlightenment in this lifetime, then fantastic, a tremendous blessing. If you don't achieve enlightenment, well, you've lived an incredibly meaningful life, and you've really gotten a lot of horsepower, a lot of momentum in that direction. So on the one hand, you know, as much as one feels realistic, maybe where one is in one's age, well, at least I'd love to achieve shamatha and maybe reach the path. Geshe said, if you, you know, if you start young and devote your life to Dharma and you don't achieve the path in this lifetime, what was wrong with you? That's what he said. And I, he told me that when I was 21. I said, oh, man, I think he's referring to me. Maybe I should. <laughs> so so in, within this lifetime, Push the limits of what you think might be possible. Not to be silly. You know, if you're 85 years old and you're just starting the practice, may I achieve rainbow body in this lifetime? Might be a bit unrealistic. <laughs> unless you've got some really good longevity pills. Um, but if you know you're 60, 65, 70, and you're, you're really now getting serious, and your, your health is good, your mind is clear, then why not aspire for shamatha? Why not aspire? If you're a shamatha, then don't stop at shamatha. Already be thinking beyond shamatha. Why not reach the path? Why not make a splash? and impress your grandchildren. <laughs> my grandma, the Siddha. My grandma, the Bodhisattva. You know? And if you're younger, then why stop there? You know? There it is. I mean, the, with, that, the, with that one text, and there are so many brilliant texts, but that one text, the Vajra Essence, it's laid out like a red carpet right in front of you. It's all there. Everything is there. Let alone the other four mind treasures. And that's just one, one you know, Dertun, this great Dujum Lingba. And there's so many other great ones for all the schools of Tibetan Buddhism. And so here's the sense of urgency. Aim high, be noble, be, be idealistic. Elevate your aspirations. Have a sense of urgency, right? On the one hand, but there's going to be a balance here. On the other hand, have the long-term view. Have the long-term view. And that is if you see, or to the extent that you see, this is worth doing no matter what. 
shamatha, gosh, it's just called sanity versus insanity. I'm going to choose sanity. And if it takes 10 years or it takes 10 lifetimes, I want to be on that track and not give up and then just be settled with insanity. You know, dysfunctional mind, flip-flop, flip-flop, ADHD for the rest of my lifetimes. You know, that's kind of, no matter what it takes, shamatha, to stabilize that and use that as a platform for something irreversible. You can tell from me, I mean, count me all in. I mean, what else would I do? What else is worth? Where's the competition? You know, where's the competition? And so having a long-term view, whether it's shamatha as a launching pad, bodhicitta of intrinsic enormous value, realization of emptiness, intrinsic value, and just seeing the highlights. For me, when I was just starting out and seeing, hearing so many things that were alien, that didn't make sense, that I found hard, hard to believe, that was just odd and outside of my culture, because we were being taught pretty much as if we were Tibetans, and it didn't all go down like, you know, like cream. Uh, and sometimes to really struggle, and you're like, wow, whoa, 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 whoa. But in the midst of a lot of information, a lot, some really resonated, some didn't resonate, um, there were these three themes that just said, okay, you got me. And that was the value, the authenticity, the integrity of the spirit of emergence, emerging from the hedonic, moving towards the eudaimonic, towards liberation, towards authentic aspiration. That got me. I said, well, that one I can't doubt. And then the second one is bodhicitta. I think that has to be the most noble aspiration anybody's ever conceived of. I can't imagine how it could be better than that. And then as soon as I had some teachings on emptiness, I thought, boy, there's no way I can refute that. So those are called the three principles of the path. In the sacred tradition, it's the four parting from the four desires. Same material comes down to the same point. And so those were, those, were my, those were my towering peaks that I thought, okay, that's it. No matter what, I'm in. That's it. Uh, th th those I can't doubt. Other things I'll, I'll get to them, I'll work through them, I'll either accept them or reject them, I'll get to them. But those, those three, those I can't doubt, that's, the, that's enough. That's enough the whole lifetime, absolutely. Yes, count me in, in fact, beyond, I'll go ahead and make prayer. And so it is this balance between cultivating a sense of urgency and a sense of total commitment, of just long term. From now, I mean, when, from now until I achieve enlightenment, you know, may I perfect the six perfections and so forth. From now until, I mean, all in, not just for one lifetime, but all in for all future lifetimes. And it's that kind of commitment, that then that's, that's the tie that binds, that connects you from lifetime to lifetime to lifetime to lifetime. Right? That's what connects you. Even if you've not achieved shamatha and all these higher realizations, that motivation of total commitment, it's enlightenment no matter how long it takes. If, it's seven, if it has to be three countless eons, count me in. It's a good countless three eons instead of a crappy three countless eons. Three, three countless eons are going to happen one way or another. So count me in on the one that goes to enlightenment and not the one that just chases its tail for three countless eons. You know, up and down, up and down, up and down. Right? So there it is, this balance. Urgency and just a sense, however long it takes, this is it. Finally, just kind of footnote, because it just pops in my mind. But... Uh, It can actually, in traditional Buddhist scriptures, stated that in some cases there may be couples, man and wife, you know, uh, for example, man and wife, and they have just a very deep love, but not only attachment, but very deep commitment to each other, love for each other, very deep spiritual bond. I remember one story in particular of, I think it was in Southeast Asia, actually, a couple deeply devoted to each other, in, in every way, just such a deep commitment and love for each other. And they, uh, they made the prayer. Uh, together, jointly, individually, both. Um, in all of our lifetimes, may we always come back together. 
and be partners. Be partners. And achieve enlightenment together. So, and you make that prayer, if it's very sincere, then you're going to be stuck with that person. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so be very careful. <laughs> Especially if one is born, born as a human being, the other one's born as a toad. <laughs> I feel this affinity for you. I don't know why. <laughs> so keep good ethics. You'll keep on the same plane. You know, human, human. It works out much better that way. <laughs> oh, that's, I think I know when to stop, stop talking once in a while, and it's right now. Let's, let's meditate. So let's continue, and I think we can complete the list of pledges that one voluntarily takes on and uses them as, again, like a picket fence to protect, to guard your practice, uh, things that can erode it. So he's just kind of, these are, you know exactly what they are. So the next one is abandon all hope of rewards. So on the one hand, this refers to letting your Dharma practice be in, in the service of mundane Aspirations, so for example, uh, uh, practicing with the hope of gaining high status in this life, respect, fame, magical powers. Uh, and he, he lists even here, fortunate rebirth, your own liberation. And then even finally, even your own perfect enlightenment. And that was the, the, the notion of hope always entails kind of a grasping, a clinging, an expectation. As you, most of you have heard when I first went into retreat under the Dalai Lama's guidance, he said, expectation is a foundation of failure. And that is where we put a limit, you know, like by this time or in this way, we, co we concretize, we crystallize it, rather than just leaving it wide open as an aspiration. So abandoning all hopes of rewards, on the one hand, mundane, so kind of obvious. Uh, and, and as Gatchodon Bachi told me in the retreat that I was doing a long time ago, even especially while you're doing the practice, in the midst of, in, in this case, I was doing a six-month practice of retreat of settling the mind in its natural state, he said, when you're doing it, release all desire, all aspiration, all hopes of some eventual outcome. When you're doing the practice, just be right there in the moment, right? Uh, because any grasping onto the future then just acts as an obstacle. I think this is familiar. So we can move right on. Avoid poisoned food. Poisoned food. Well, this simply means acting out of self-interest or self-centeredness, uh, not regarding self-grasping as the enemy, without rejecting self-centeredness. And so poison food are just, these are the, two, the opposites of the two types of bodhicitta, the self-centeredness, the self-grasping. So again, not much commentary is needed. Um, yeah, a lot of this is very familiar. So moving right on. Do not indulge in self-righteousness. I don't think that needs much uh, commentary either. Uh, for example, avoid flaring up in indignation and resentment at the, at the misdeeds of others. Coming back to the advice His Holiness gave me when I first met him, and that is the greater understanding you have, the more you've understood of Dharma, the more you've practiced Dharma. It is, of course, the temptation, and it comes very quickly, is to feel, oh, I'm a Dharma practitioner. I'm something superior. I'm something special. Here and now, what's taking place? And then it's also prospective memory. So we're just, we're working out in the mindfulness gym here that is working with retrospective mindfulness, present-centered mindfulness, Prospective mindfulness, that's full-fledged mindfulness. That's Buddhist mindfulness. And not collapsing it into just bare attention. Uh, but for something like that, so there it is, Sarc uh, malicious sarcasm. You can just review your, 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 your own memories of your own conduct and see, do I ever do that at all? 
And if the answer is no, with all self-honesty, no, I just never do that, then good, you can skip that one. Don't worry about it. Go on to the next one. You know? But if you say, well, not normally, except for when I hear about this political party or I hear about this type of person or that type of group, that really gets to me. And then I feel self-righteous. Then I really, I want to talk. I want to get on the phone. I want to tell somebody. And, and not just about themes. Condemning bad behavior, you see me do it many times, and I do it with, I will not stop. I mean, why should it, if, if, if racism is still occurring, we should still beat up on racism, right? And there are many other things. If they're horrible, dishonesty, corruption, malevolence, uh, so many other things, sure. Why not? Just not equating people's behavior with the people, right? So I'll continue doing that. I'm going to keep, keep on beating up on materialism until it's dead. One of us is going to die first. I'm hoping it's materialism. I'll do my best, you know. Uh, because it's not a sentient being. I wish nobody any harm in that regard. But, but it's, it's a disease of mind, terribly destructive. Uh, and it's pissing me off when they complain it with science, because I love science. And that's, that's a no-no. So whether it's self-righteousness, whether it's malicious sarcasm, see, do you have any tendency for it at all, where it's clearly driven by mental afflictions? And then ask yourself, what are the triggers? Because we're not just, none of us walking around just speaking malicious sarcasm all the time. We have to get a break once in a while. And we're not walking around all the time equally, feeling equally self-righteous if we're prone to that. Not all the time, you know. And so then look, okay, what are the kind of things that trigger it? And then, so that's, that's memory, retrospective memory. And then being attentive, not here so much because not many triggers for mental afflictions. But when we venture back into socially engaged life with a very diverse array of people, people and the situations we're encountering, recognize the type of situation you're in. This is called rush hour traffic. This is called dealing with a really frustrating customer. This is dealing with this type of situation. So you have some kind of a general assessment of what's taking place. You know what's happening, not just moment to moment. You say, this is this type of situation. This is tense. I'm in a board meeting and I see some real conflict here. There's something really going on. And now, okay, that's what's going on. I'm recognizing it. And then ask, in this situation, is this a situation that's one of my triggers? Is this a time to be ungaved, you know? Has the sword been drawn out? They could catalyze self-righteous, you know, self-righteousness or malicious sarcasm and so forth to be looking for the triggers. And then, just like in this perspective memory I spoke about earlier in terms of dream yoga, you remember? Seeing an anomaly, asking yourself, might I be dreaming, pulling your nose and so forth? Well, for ethics, looking for the triggers. What are the kind of things that are your, call them buttons, what are your buttons that arouse some of your very familiar mental afflictions and certain type of habitual tendencies of behavior? And then this is where the real growth happens. And then it's fun. And then you can see, whoa, I really can, I, the, I, I saw it coming, there it was. Normally that would have been a trigger, and this time it wasn't. Conquest. I beat one. And it's not beating any person, you know that. It's saying, I didn't fall into the same rut. I'm on an expedition to enlightenment, getting my feet unstuck from their own ruts, from the old ruts. So do not engage in malicious sarcasm. Again, don't justify it because your words are true. Not good enough. Not good enough. True or false, your words are still not going in the direction you want to go. Do not wait in ambush. This is avoid holding a grudge and retaliating when your target is off guard and avoid, see seeking, seeking, avoid seeking out others' faults. So it's, we all know it. So one minute commentary. Somebody really has treated you very badly. You hold it, hold it yourself, you hold it in, and you're waiting your moment to punch back, either right directly to them 
or get them around from behind through people they know and so forth. Pull the rug out from beneath them. Not helpful. Do not load the, this one, a little bit of commentary. Uh, do not load the burden of a zo on an ox. Okay, everybody who's living in Tibet, they say, yeah, that needs no commentary, carry on. Uh, but a zo is a, is a cross between a yak and an ox. Okay, in other words, it's a really powerful beast of burden. Uh, an, a, a, an ox and a yak. So they can carry a very, very powerful, a very heavy load. Whereas an ox is not as strong. And so if, you ha so if there is an undesirable task or responsibility that is rightfully yours, do not deviously shift it to someone else. If there's some onerous task, some, some task, some responsibility that's heavy, and really you're the one that can do it, but you don't really want to, don't shunt it off to somebody else. Take it yourself. Okay? That's very specific. Do not flatter to get to the top. Well, that's straightforward. needs no commentary. Avoid pretense. And this is any kind of practice in which your inner motivation is at variance with your outer conduct. Uh, trying to make an impression. Putting on any kind of a show. Trying to impress. And of course, it's, in a way, it's kind of very much part of our culture. If you're going for a job interview, you're not going there to be ex extremely humble and say, ah, shucks, who, who me? I'm probably not worthy. Uh, you'll be made, trying to make a good impression. And if you meet a lama, you know, if you meet a lama, somebody you really respect, when I see his holiness, you know, the last thing, I, frankly, it would just be sheer idiocy to try to pretend to him that I have qualities that I don't have. I mean, that's just like silly. Um, but when we, when we do seek to make an impression, that we have a sense that what's on the inside is on the outside. And nothing devious, nothing pretentious, nothing that is in any way dishonest or misleading. Do not bring a god down to the level of a demon. Um, so various comment, uh, commentaries on this. Uh, so if you, if, in, in Tibet, as I said, we, as, as we have elementary particles, I don't know how many dozen of them by now, they've got all these type of beings, mundane, de mundane devas, super mundane, Pretas, spirits of a wide variety, elemental spirits. I mean, it's a tremendous menagerie. But among mundane, mundane devas, mundane deities or gods, uh, these are beings in the Buddhist, traditional Buddhist world, world here. It's not just Tibetan. Uh, these are beings within samsara, but they're right now reaping the fruits of some very virtuous karma. So they ha they're more beings of light, you know, high energy, high frequency beings. They have their own realm of existence. They have clairvoyance. They have powers. Uh, very much like the gods of Greek mythology, the, go the gods of Hindu mythology, the gods of Buddhist mythology, except for the Greeks and the Hindus and the Buddhists have all taken these literally, uh, as beings are really there. And they can help you, they harm you. Don't piss them off because they're not entirely virtuous. But if you supplicate them, you treat them well, you ask them, they, they may help you. In fact, I'll tell you an interesting story. Um, there was a man I met, very, one of the most interesting people I've ever met. Very early days when I was like 1970 maybe end of 71, early 72. He was a Sikh. I told this story a few times. Does anybody not know this, my story of the Sikh? Anybody here? Oh, a fair number of people. Okay, I'll tell. It, but it's a good story. And it's about this. And so there was this elderly Sikh, probably about my age, so he wasn't that old. Um, but he was a Sikh, and he was mute. He could not speak. And he was a friend of... Dr. Ishidunan. So I met a number of interesting people, including the state oracle and the Sikh and other people, um, because I was living in his home. And the Sikh couldn't speak, but he, uh, being an 
I think he must have been relatively educated indeed. He could write in English. And um, he was a very interesting character. I don't know, he was a friend, he was a friend of Dr. Yeshudanam, but I don't know exactly the nature of their friendship. But he would come by. And then he saw me there, hanging out and uh, living there. And he noticed that there was some kind of a, a blockage in my abdomen. I don't know how he had any idea, but he pointed and kind of made a kind of a wincing sound like, it hurts here? And I said, yeah, it does. How, how do you know that? I couldn't ask him, but we could write notes back to each other. And uh, he told me, um, oh, at the first thing he did, he wanted to make an impression, but a truthful impression. Um, he, he said, tell me mundane stuff like uh, your favorite color. It was this kind of random assortment of really simple mundane questions like what's your favorite color, what's your favorite number, just chit-chat little questions. But he had a little kind of printed thing, and he tell me, and write that down in English. So sure, why not? And so I, I filled in this little questionnaire. It's really weird, but totally mundane, ordinary, insignificant, and irrelevant little questions. And he took those and he looked at them. And, uh, and then he proceeded to tell me a whole bunch of stuff about my personal life, how many siblings I had, and he went into quite some detail about my personal life. And everything he said was true. Stuff that he had no way of knowing. It's the kind of stuff that you just, you have no reason to tell anybody, even the Tibetans I knew. I mean, it's personal things about family and so forth. And everything he said was true. It really caught my attention. Like, whoa. He didn't give me any valuable information, didn't tell me anything I didn't know, but he showed me he knew things, a lot of things about me that nobody in the village knew or would be interested in. And he knew that. And it really caught my attention, like, that is weird. Not helpful, but weird. And he just showed me he has ways of knowing that I don't know anything about it all. Because he says, no way. I knew that. No way you can know this. And not from that questionnaire. Uh-uh. So he caught my attention. And then after having caught my attention, he said, um, I think I can help you with this abdominal problem. And he caught my attention. Okay, well, tell me. What? And he prepared this uh, kind of an herbal compound, and it was um, milk, hot milk. Hot milk and a, and a very nice, very tasty, sweet, spicy herbal compound. And he said, heat up the milk and put this herbal compound in it. See whether that helps. And this is how much it costs. He charged me. It wasn't very much. And I was poor, but I wasn't that poor, so I could afford it. And I took it, and it was really tasty. Really, yeah, really tasty. And didn't help at all. <laughs> and... Uh, so I told him, you know, it was very nice. I like, thanks for the snack, but it didn't help. And then he said, okay, um, let's try plan B. And this is all with writing, because he couldn't, he could, he could make little noises. Um, he wasn't deaf, but he was mute. So maybe I spoke with him, but I, rec I recall mostly just passing notes back and forth, because um, he could write English. And he said, we'll try it, we'll try plan B. And so he came to my room. I had a long, kind of a long corridor type of room because it was the, this was just a shack, a wooden shack with a tin roof. On the roof of Dr. Yesha Dundon's block house, cinder block house, concrete, and his office and his, his shrine room and his clinic was down below. And then we had these little wooden shacks on top, and that's where he lived, his apprentice lived, the cook lived, the kitchen was up there, and then he had one, one shed that was his uh, shed for where he stored all his medicines, all the basic compounds. 
And so he, made, he put a little um, iron frame bed there, and that was my bedroom. Um, it was perfectly nice. Um, so this old Sikh one evening came to my room, and it was kind of a long room, maybe only five feet wide and maybe 15 feet long. And he sat on one corner of the room, and I sat on my bed. He sat on a chair. And uh, he said, take off your shirt. I said, okay, no problem. And he gave me a little something that looked like a little pie tin. And any of you who live in America, you know, these, get these little tiny pecan pies, little tiny ones, like this big around, and a little pie tin. And um, so, and it was exactly like that. It was a little metal tin, just like a little pie, a pie tin, but it was empty. And I looked at it, it was perfectly clean. It was empty. And he said, okay, my shirt's off. And he said, okay, now put this over the place where you, where you feel affliction, where there's this problem. And I said, okay. So I did. So it's empty, I, put, I, cup it, I cup it on my skin, just put it over face, face down, so it's cupped on my skin. And then he's sitting over there, he didn't touch anything, he had no possible way of any getting, putting anything in there, it was empty, I put it on my skin. And then he sat in the, op, the catacorner of the little, this, this room, this kind of longish room, and he, and he had a mala, a rosary, and he started literally mumbling a mantra. I, that's all I could tell you, like, like that. And, as he, and I, I couldn't hear what the mantra was, but I could see he was doing it. That's all I could see. But as I was holding this, this empty pie tin in my cupped palm, my empty palm on the skin, I experienced something very odd, and that is this metal little tin or little plate uh, started getting hot, and then it started getting burning hot, way hotter than body temperature. Hot. Not so hot it really burned, but it was hot. And then when he, saw, and then he finished reciting the mantra, and he said, okay, take it off. Take it off, you take, it, take it off. And I did. It was full of ash. Really fine ash. Like you find it uh, in a fireplace when you burn a really hot fire. And it's just really, really fine ash. It was full of gray ash. He had no way of getting in there. And I've spoken with, with chemists and so forth and since. Do you know of any way you can take an empty pie tin, put it on your skin, have it get really hot and come away full of ash? Nobody's come up with any explanation for that one. Zero. Uh, no coating, nothing. And so that I saw, and I looked at it and said, oh. and then he motioned, I took that out of you. And that'll be 100 rupees. <laughs> it's not a re not, 100 rupees was $12, so it wasn't, a, wasn't you know, outrageous. Uh, that, was, that was my monthly food and rent, but, uh, you know, I did have it. I could afford it. And also, I, I, it occurred to me that if I say no, <laughs> he might say, oh, okay. Uh, in my, but in that case, you can have your ash back, and it's going to appear in your throat <laughs> or in your heart. I said, okay, you can. So I gave him 100 rupees. And then, he gave me, and then he turned around and gave me a beautiful mala, a really, really beautiful rosary. It was probably worth pretty close to 100 rupees. Um, and that's the end of that story. And it didn't help. But I got to tell that story quite a number of times, and it's been fun every single time. So why do I mention it? That was a long tangent, I know. But did you expect otherwise? I mean, and so, but I asked him, uh, you have powers. You knew stuff that you had no way of knowing. I know that. You know that. I know that. Uh, that was not normal. That was a city. It didn't work. It didn't help. But you still did something that is just shouldn't be able to happen. And you did it, and I know that. So you persuaded me. How did this happen? How did you get these abilities? And he told me. And that's commentary to this 
finally get back to the aphorism. He told me that um, he told me that when he was much younger, he knew a young Indian man, and he had just a premonition. That's all it was, just a, simply a premonition that it would be a really bad idea for this young man to be flying, flying, that something bad would happen if he would go flying you know, in an airplane. And he said, I think you should stay away from airplanes. Just a hunch. And the young man didn't listen to him. He said, well, what do you know? <laughs> you know, airplanes, everybody flies an airplane. And the man actually joined, I think, the, uh, I think he joined the Indian Air Force. Uh, so he just did the opposite. And he died. He was in the airplane and it crashed. And he died. And what this old man, the old Sikh, told me, I never learned his name. Or if I, if I did, I forgot it. He told me that this man then was born as a deva. Born as a deva. Uh, but the deva remembered the good-hearted advice this old man had given him. And that he would, um, he gave him some boons. He'd give him knowledge when he wanted it, a bit of clairvoyance, and he gave him a boon. So they can help you. you know? So there it is. So devas can be really helpful, but don't bring it down to a demon. So what does this mean? So don't treat a god with disrespect, because they can retaliate as if they were a demon. The mind training, the lojong, is for, do, for, is for subduing yourself, but it is corrupted if it results in a sense of superiority. That taking the god, something is really quite noble, lofty, good, and then if you bring it down to a sense of self-superiority, you know, narcissism and so forth, you've brought the god down to the demon. If you have a sense of you're an outstanding practitioner, you're better than the others, if you regard others as inferior, then you've taken the god and brought it down to the demon, and you're the demon. So regard yourself as the least of servants to, to everyone. Uh, so practice, 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 practice in order to overcome your own afflictions, not to develop a sense of being superior. We've covered that one. Do not take advantage of another's misfortune. Very straightforward. The Germans call it schadenfreude, taking delight in another's misfortune. Not helpful. And that's it. Those are the... We just finished six out of seven. Those are the pledges. So, re, uh, so the advice would be to review them. See which ones. Uh, maybe, you're, maybe, you're, maybe you're prone to all of them, maybe only a few of them. But identify those that still do crop up in your own behavior. Recognize them. Okay, and you can the other ones, if you see some, I just don't do that. Good. Set them to the side. Focus on the ones that you're prone to. Recognize their triggers. Be on guard for them. Overcome them. And that will protect your practice. We have a few more minutes. And there are personal questions here. I'm going to generalize them um, because I think they're relevant to everyone. So I'm going to read them silently, generalize them because there may be a little bit of personal issues here, then I will not share those. Okay, so here's the first one. So it has to do with uh, transforming adversity into the path. So it has to do, this is, uh, this is relevant to all of us, and it's very important. I've cited a couple of times a, re re a refrain a theme, a verse, or a line that comes up repeatedly in the introspection chapter, the fifth chapter of Shantideva's Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life. And he, goes, he returns to it again and again and again with a different, different citing different mental afflictions or tendencies, like sarcasm, like contempt, like arrogance, and so forth. And he said, when you see these impulses arise, then he comes back again to the refrain, be like a piece of wood, which of course he's saying, now is not the time to act. Now is the time, even if your mind is being stormed by a certain impulse, some you know, intention, to, intention you really would like to act, okay, hold it back, just like a wild horse. Hold it back, rein it in, keep it to yourself. Do not act when your mind is filled with rage, contempt, 
craving, jealousy, arrogance, and so forth and so on, when you see that the, the ramparts of your mind have been stormed by these afflictive tendencies, that's a time to be like a piece of wood. So in other words, don't, make, don't let it manifest in the world by way of behavior, of body, speech, and mind. Uh, and also, uh, keep it to yourself so it doesn't become contagious. Um, contempt is very contagious. If you express contempt, for example, for a political party, for another person, or for somebody who's really an evildoer, you know, but with real contempt, with despising, contemptuous, arrogant, like that, uh, then that tends to be contagious. And other people, oh, they'll join in. Oh, yeah, you're right. You know, and then they'll add to it. And then you have a little contempt fest. You know? Not helpful. So when you see such impulses arise, he says, be like a piece of wood. But now what about those situations? And that's, that sounds good. I mean, don't be contagious. Quarantine yourself. Let it pass. Let the fit like the malarial bout of your mental afflictions, let it subside before you engage. That's really good if you're living here. You know, we'd have so few demands on our time. If something comes up, yes, we've got 22 hours on your own, you know, cool it. And don't socially engage at all until, you know, your mind has come to restored to equilibrium. But again, in just a tiny bit more than a week, we're going to be re-engaging with a more diverse environment than we are here. And what about those situations? So situations where you're encountering aggression, you're encountering belligerence, some really strong behavior, some really malevolent behavior, really harmful behavior on the other, is this suggesting that you should be apathetic? That you should just not respond at all? Um, which may then, if you're just kind of, kind of being a doormat, say, I won't say anything, my mind's afflicted, I won't say anything, then the other person taking this as a sign of weakness and then jumping on you, trouncing on you again. So at what point is this simply apathy? or allowing yourself to be taken advantage of, or becoming bullied by another person. Uh, so there's, there's a real-life situation. Uh, and we all will, you know, we're going, we encounter those situations on, on occasion. Uh, the advice here is to try to be moment to moment. That if you're in the midst of a conversation, to suddenly stop and say, I'm not going to say anything right now, I have to be like a piece of wood, there are situations where that's just not going to work. You know, it's part of a conversation. You're part of a, a, a business meeting. You're part of a transaction. You're, part of, you're engaged in some activity, and you can't just stop. It would just be too awkward. Uh, so what to do then? And what to do then is to then mic uh, micromanage. Look from moment to moment to moment. That is, if you're maintaining, you've really developed your skill, some strength of settling the mind as natural state. So you are able to observe the mental afflictions and not simply be caught up in them. Then you see mental addiction is going to rise from second to second, but not necessarily for one minute at a stretch. So when you're in the midst of that, when you see there was an impulse of saying this, but if I say it, it won't be helpful. That impulse, I've just checked it, and there was a spark, there's a flame, no flame, thank you. I'm going to keep it as a spark. And you release it. For the next five seconds, you may find that your mind is relatively calm. Not deeply calm, but you see that the incentive for, for action is not driven by the mental affliction. You're having a little bit of a lull in the storm. When you see that, when you see, all right, within this context, right now my mind is pretty okay, and what I'm about to say, you monitor it. You monitor it. But what I'm about to say, or the action I'm, I would, I would, I'm feeling now I'd like to do, with the best, most sound judgment you can bring to bear, say, okay, I think this will be okay. And you express that. Right? So even in the midst of a complex situation, 
mental afflictions can be crowding in from second to second. And you'll get lulls in the storm. When one arises, you see, can't act on that one. But then another one, it's more even. So just within that micromanaging, that observation, then when you speak, let it be measured. Let it come from a better space, relatively speaking, when the affliction is not so virulent. And you see, this is relative calm. This is clear. This is some intelligence here. There's some dharma here. Act out of that. So it's not going into a cocoon. It's from moment to moment saying, no, no, okay, that one, yes. And that one you launch. It's a way to save, protect ourselves. And I mentioned this with somebody today in an interview. To do that uh, is to really do yourself a great favor, let alone anybody else in the environment, because you'll save yourself from regrettable episodes. Paul Ekman's work. I love it. But just having you look back and say, oh, man, I wish I hadn't said that. And it's not only retrospective. It's not only being aware of the present. It is, I'm doing this a lot. I do this, I mean, I handle a lot of email here. And a fair number of Skype conversations, part of my job. I have to do that. Um, and sometimes I see other people behaving in, in, inappropriately. And I just ask myself a, a simple question. And again, it's just, it's just common sense, frankly. and just, It's just more common sense than anything else. I'm saying this person did something really inappropriate. And I could point that out. And then I simply ask a simple question. If I point it out, what are the, what, what's the likelihood of it being helpful? It's just that simple. What's the likelihood of the person welcoming what I said, responding to it in a positive way, and bringing about a beneficial change? What's the likelihood? Chances are almost always not. In some cases, yes. Whenever there's a lot of trust, receptivity, respect, a welcomeness to constructive criticism. Yes, of course. I have a grandson. I grandfather him sometimes. I'll say, yeah, no, no, no. Can't do that. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm grandpa, you're grandson. We're not the same here. You know, sure, of course. But in many cases with adults, adults, they're not looking for advice. They don't want to hear advice. And if you give them criticism, they don't like it. And that's it. That's just they don't like it. They're not going to change. Uh, in which case, whether my words are justified, whether they're true, whether they're wise, doesn't matter. If they're not going to be helpful, you will keep it to yourself. That simple. Save your breath. So that's it. And then So I, that's, there's nuance there. I think that's as much as I can do right now. We're almost out of time. Very good. Now, the person, I, the person who wrote this note knows perfectly well. I'm looking at now regarding status of my meditation efforts. Very good. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Yes, yes. And the other one, the final one, the, the final question, um, I don't have a whole lot to offer, but we can talk about it the next time we meet. Nothing urgent about it. Okay? Oh, lasso. So those are the pledges, all designed only to be helpful, to protect that which is 
valuable beyond all price. Cultivate those two. You can be living happily under a rock with a bag of flour. You know? Do the opposite. You can have $30 billion and be looking for your next antidepressant. Yeah. So really, literally, beyond all price. That's it. Enjoy your evening. See you, oh yeah, see you Monday. See you Monday. Enjoy a day with nothing to do besides Dharma.